out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician, songwriter and artist Anthony Dolphin, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry and much, much more. He's in a musical band or combo. It's kind of, um, yes, mostly his project, really, called Santa Spree's. All their material is on Bandcamp. And also he does have various social media platform sites. So this is the interview. Um, just occasionally the reception or the um, yeah quality dips, but not that much. So um, after several minutes of interesting, but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early musical or cultural awakening. Anyway, Anthony, it's over to you. Cultural, I think... Uh because I know you start with this question, I was kind of given some thought, and <laughs> definitely, definitely the first, um, definitely the first thing I thought I knew uh, that's pop music. It's contemporary pop music, and it's not like your mum and dad's. It's not Jim Reeves or the South Pacific or something. It was um, hearing ABC by the Jackson Five, and I think because when you're a little kid, you kind of like oh, I can hear the voice of another little kid, and it was ABC by the Jackson 5 and I also remember about kind of early 70s being very very young but um also Gary Glitter and and also although I don't think I realized it was old music then um Phil Spector Christmas album yes um so in that in that trio we've got we've got Gary Glitter we've got the uh, convicted murderer Phil Spector and uh and Michael Jackson so quite a yeah, it's, it's yeah, I know. You role, role models for life. Yeah. yeah, most of our 70s um, role models probably should or have been in prison yeah, at some stage. Kind of found wanting. <laughs> so I think, yeah. And then, uh, and then later, you, you kind of go through phases, isn't it? like a kid, that was a kind of kiddie pop phase. Um, I think I'm a little bit younger than you, but um, um, well, because you just told me your age, I know I'm a bit younger than you. Four years difference, but. Um, I, then I remember th- my first realization there was a thing called rock that wasn't pop. It was a neighbor who um, called Andrew Fletcher, and uh, he had a, he was the first time I ever saw a portable cassette player. And he he um, he had he used to go to drag racing with his dad at Santa Pod, and he had a recording on one side of just drag racing, just going whatever sound drag race drag uh, cars make and on the other side he had a uh, thin lizzie record i don't know what it was but i knew like oh, this was dirty and adult and greasy and noisy and that's when i kind of i think in my head i go okay there's rock over there and there's pop there yeah and i think i've always i was like the pop stream more we were seen as more laughs and a bit more fun Yes, well, quite clearly I, more clearly more murders and child molests as well. But um, yeah, but then we did uh, have but, things. We did see. I don't know if you might have been still too young to see Top of the Pops, and I think it was the Alex Harvey band, wasn't it? Doing various like songs which yeah. were quite menacing, and he was and the band were just very menacing as well. So very it, theatrical that stuff. Yeah, it was Alex very Harvey. theatrical. But okay, yeah. again, you know, you, you wouldn't have probably trusted him with your house keys and to. Water no. the plants or feed your cat, would you really? Yeah. It's only later that you you that frisson 
of, of danger is something appealing as it takes a while doesn't it for that for, for you to almost like that for you to like something slightly yes. menacing and i remember that i remember that dawning was a kind of um i was a bit too young to really get punk apart from it being like a you know a kind of tut tut story on them um, nationwide or something mary whitehouse looking saying disapproving things but i remember i kind of remember i really remember um my top of the pops memories biggest strongest ones early on were um i think it was summer nights was number one forever yes john travolta and living john and and when it was knocked off number one it was rat trap boomtown rats knocked off and um and Bob Geldof did the most punk rock thing ever, but he ripped a picture of Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta in half in a close-up, beautifully composed, ripped it in half, and then just went to rap. Duh, 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 duh. And then I did think, fucking hell, I'm having some of that. <laughs> first, first album I had bought in a catalogue for Christmas by my mum, beautifully was Tonic for the Troops. Yeah. I, remember that. I remember those kind of like you had your... You were younger, so I know Bowie was a big thing for that generation. So, um, and were your parents at all artistic or musical? Uh-uh. Uh, my mum was a hairdresser, and my dad was a butcher. Blimey! There and, you uh, go. That's quite that's quite extreme, really, isn't it? And did you extreme, have any extreme? Older... Yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose they they ruled the extreme high street, didn't they? They I, they did. Yeah, I mean, they were both very in the high street, and um, sometimes on Saturday afternoons. Um, but one of the babysitter and my mum worked as well. We'd, 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 me and my brother would just hang out all day upstairs at the butchers, playing in freezers and stuff. Yes. Fuck, fucking weird. That's kind of, so I mean, that's kind of, um, but it was good fun, you know, to kind of a freedom. And we'd often go around, me and my brother would go around. My brother's the artist, Graham Dolphin. I don't know if you know him, but he's, uh, he's a fine artist, my brother, and, uh, um, and he's a bit younger than me four years younger than me and we used to yeah just go out with that the first kind of you have our 50p pocket money go out trying to you know looking at singles looking at charts singles and stuff and deciding how to spend your your money yes so this was a being because you were you were born 1968 weren't you that's right yeah so did you leave school at 16 which would have been no, you know, far too, probably some far too erudite clever to have left school at 16. But I think I'm probably the first person in family to stay on. And um, um, yeah, my mum and dad were really amazing, absolutely amazing parents. I was massively indulged. You can see still the, the latent effects of being very indulged by a parent. Yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you could. You uh, you wanted for nothing, did you? Well, no, not in that sense, not materially, you know, at all. But it was just, it was more like um, there was no more love could have been lavished on two children than, than me and my brother got from a mother. It's totally one way. It's all what she wanted to do um, was be a was be a mother, and all she ever told me and my brother is like, you're better than the others. You can't, you know, you're special, you, you know, different. The kind of thing that's standard issue, I think, now really in parenting. But it's kind of, um, it's got lots of upsides. That kind of, um, yes, motherhood. Absolutely. It kind of gives you confidence. The kind of ridiculous confidence I have. But it also has downsides because, yeah, you 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 think you're special or something, and of course, no one's no one's particularly special. 
and we just have to gonna work that out later so yeah upsides but i'd rather have had that than the uh, yes than, than the other yeah, yeah neglect, but, neglect and beatings in cold or, rooms yeah. And, yeah mixed messages as well so then you got yeah. to sort of 84 you were 18 weren't you then so that uh, let me think oh no, a bit older i'd have to be 86 i'd have been 18 yeah yeah 86 i think was my 18th birthday yeah so did you so I, I stayed on at school did six six form yeah and did you at that stage get into what was your first gig you went to well, do you want do you want the honest answer or the yes? Cool, well, cool Stuart one? Stuart Lee was the Wombles, so yeah. Well, the first one was me and my brother was both the same, so we have to come. We was going to see the Bachelors at an eat a dance with my nan and granddad. They used to go dancing on a Saturday night, and the bat you know the Bachelors, do you? Yes. Yeah, they're kind of like an Irish kind of show band, really, and it's quite a weird experience because there's lots of quite overheated elderly women like you know kind of kind of in a kind of a pop frenzy but you know in a very post-menopausal pop frenzy and um there's a neighbor a neighbor of my grand's who spent the whole evening like shouting diane diane which is clearly the name of the bachelor's hit i guess yeah i still not heard it ever and it was also the name of her daughter and yeah she just shouted herself hoarse all evening Occasionally, my granddad would say, sit, sit down, Betty, I'm another point <laughs> miles or whatever. And she was like, and it was quite good. It's quite good seeing that kind of like, okay, this is what, this is what like live music can do. So yeah. that's the uncool answer. The real answer, I went to see Prefab Sprout, going to gig independently, I went to see Prefab Sprout with, my, with a good school friend, Paul Rowe, who's now a professor of history in Budapest, now in Vienna. And we went to see Prefab Sprout. Took the coach up to Hanley on Steve McQueen. Tour. Oh, because I went to that one. I, Did you? That was that was the album that I loved, and I loved Side yeah. One. I didn't really play Side Two much, to be honest. But That's um, interesting, actually. Yeah, I loved Side One, and yeah, got the ticket, went to see them. Thought brilliant band and was very indie pop. So, did you did you veer into the eighties indie pop world at this stage? Uh, yeah, I think I was probably, I mean, I would think, uh, depends what you call indie, indie, indie schmindy kind of, uh, I think um, initially I liked kind of, you know, I was I, I, the same friend actually, we were quite drawn to, um, you know, it is very hormonal, like just um, long raincoat type, Echo and the Bunny Men. Um, Joy Division? No, not Joy Division. My friend, my my friend uh, Robin liked Joy Division a lot. I just couldn't get on with them. They just weren't much fun. And uh, yeah, yeah, kind of Bunnymen, Simple Minds, uh, the Water Boys, Associates. We talked about earlier. Associates, yes. I, I loved. And um, and then I think yeah, uh, then it becomes a bit more. Um, Kind of full on John Peel listening and realizing there's other stuff and there's the fall and there's prefab sprout and you know, the wooden tops and we kind of like trying to find a more obscure band each week. And, yes, you know, it's it, that individuation, I think Young calls at that stage. Yes, we, we 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 like to find we like to think that we discovered Big Flame or Stump, but then you realize yeah, Stump. 
<laughs> quite a few other people. Oh, bog shed, yeah. Bog why, shed. why is why is your um, podcast called C eighty six? So, by the way, so then just... the the new musical express. I remember the out... cassette and everything, but why you chose that? That well, your that your was podcast. my that was my um, that was going to be the meteor, wasn't it? Yeah. It was the three. I suppose I I started doing a show and playing the you know indie pop songs from the period, and I thought this is really boring because you can just go to Spotify and you can find all these songs. Yeah. In the old days, it was always really difficult to track down these these um, John Peel, uh, you know, seven inch singles and, right, and stuff. Yeah. But it was really hard, you know. And sometimes you'd read a review, but you weren't going to go and buy the album. But you couldn't just go and have a listen to the album because that didn't happen either. And oh. you'd always had that moment where the journalist would say, "This is the you know album of the week. You must buy it." And you go and buy it, and you think, "This is dreadful." And I spent yeah. three ninety nine or four ninety nine. And now I feel like such a plonker. And then, um, yeah, so then, so I started doing that show. And then I thought, this is a bit boring. But it would be really interesting to interview some of the bands from the 80s. And then okay. then the obsession became a bit more. So it just snowballed from there. It snowballed into some sort of crack addiction, Fantastic. didn't it, really? But, yeah, I mean, and then. Well, I don't know. I didn't. Um, I, for the ages, that's what it is. I didn't realise then, or the, uh, when I started, just how many indie bands there were from the eighties, and um, then you realise there's literally thousands, and you think, well, how did that happen? But you know that the you know it's like, oh, I must try and find this next person and this next band. So it was that's how it all kind of started. So so then, but then in eighty six, you went to art school, college. Yeah, I did a founder. In those days, you had to do the very few because I was still university. You know, um, you had to do a foundation course in art and design. There's very few universities that actually had fine art in those days. Yeah, so I went to University of Reading, did you know, fine art. Foundation course was a good good kind of stepping stone. I think it still is, really, um, to kind of get you away from A-level art where you draw potatoes and secateurs with a 2HB pencil or something. And, um, yes. And then you go, and then, then you suddenly go, you go full on Jackson Pollock and fucking nuts. And it's just... Um, you know, just kind of uncorking all of that and just and then like um you asked about my, my parents were musical and or artistic and certainly weren't so it was a big big kind of like um kind of yeah it's, it's almost like a I don't know it's almost like a step it's not a step to the middle class it's a step to bohemia and you never you never come back really once, no. you've, once you've gone there and you're never really at home anymore you know i can't i can't feel super comfy with my you know working class background i don't feel that comfortable in middle class settings it's only really you know in, in bohemia um the metaphorical bohemia that i feel kind of um you know like these are my people um it's weird yeah and even though I mean, even then, it's not the most um, supportive environment. Sometimes, like art, other artists are always kind of looking over their shoulder. You know, are, they, are they doing better than me and stuff? You know? Yes, it's a tricky but, world. Uh, but then, but that would have been a glorious period for Bohemia because you'd had French cinema. You'd had Betty Blue, Diva, Rosalind and the Lions, Hannah and her sister. That's an American film. But you yes, would have had yeah. all that experience, wouldn't you? As well as indie pop. And oh yeah, it's massive, yeah. absolutely massive. I mean, art art is much less than fine art. It was never as important to me as, as films and music. Yeah, film cinema is massive and still is a massive, um, yeah, massive obsession. Um, and 
um, yeah, and a, and a totally healthy one. I think I just um, when I was a kid, I used to get um, my mum used to buy it's kind of like film books and film magazines, and I used to get like you know, Warner Brothers story and all these glass glossy black and white photos, and I always thought this looks so much better than reality. You know, all these photos. Yeah. Great. Growing up in Stafford, that's not a difficult, you know, thing to think. But um, yeah. So it's a, it's a yeah, constant kind of escape, really. Couldn't I don't know about you. Were you, you brought up in Norwich then? Mm-hmm. East, yeah, in the countryside East of East Anglia, it's, really. It's a place I don't know much, but it's a really amazing kind of landscape and stuff isn't it it's nice landscape but culturally it was very behind the times so again punk never hit it was it was kind of status quo rock and roll heavy metal and yeah that was kind of the the kind of dominant sort of force i mean obviously things changed slightly but you certainly got that feeling that especially in the countryside it was very behind the times you know lots of leather yeah. jackets denim trousers people from school normally left at 16 without any qualifications to work in a factory work on the land you know that kind of existence you know and um it was pubs you know get into fights discos yeah. you know all very yeah. tribal it wasn't it wasn't terribly i know you, you paint a bleak picture but i think um um you know, in a way, I think then to be like to be, um, you know, an artist or to be different or to find a little, you know, a little path for yourself in that kind of environment, I think it makes you. It's a bit like people are from suburbia who become. You know, David Bowie is a good example. His his strangeness is kind of, you know, he narrates himself into existence into his persona by just resisting all of that normality. It, it's easy to be a fucking bohemian in Greenwich Village or um you know in, in London or something it's kind of it's kind of simple there's tons of them you try everywhere you can find you can find a big pool of people to heard about it's, it's hard in East Anglia yeah and then from experience and then becoming a vegetarian it's in the oh 80s. god blind was did that, you ever did you ever become a vegetarian by yeah then? for about well my dad was a butcher of course but I had um yeah probably I don't know I, I'm going to see if I, I wonder if I made two, three months, but yeah, the classic one uh, bought Meet His Murder. Okay, that's it. I actually, I, it wasn't quite all the Meet His Murder. I watched the, the Animals film, which had music by Robert White in it. I can't remember who made oh, it. Oh, Pigs. There was a track called Pigs. Wasn't yes, it? yeah, you know that. Okay, yes, that's right. Okay. Oh, yeah. The, the Animals film is absolutely unwatchable. I even do not watch it. It's absolutely terrible. Um, it's real just um snuff um and will turn you into a vegetarian and i remember seeing that at my film society and that and the meat is murder the combination yeah i'm a kind of vegan now but not more for medical reasons than um yeah a love of rabbits <laughs> so what happens to you then when you finish your university college you know art degree mm. then what what's that next chapter because it's do you do you sort of become fully yes it sounds like fully disillusioned disillusioned and also (laughs) did you did you send a a letter bomb to your tutor yeah that's right yeah you've done your research um yeah i did yeah i mean this is um part of that my father over here this um my mother died without knowing this but um 
I only told my brother not long ago, but yeah, I sent, it wasn't a real letter bomb. It was a fake letter bomb. But um, uh, yeah, it was, it was inside my dissertation. And um, my tutor was Roger Cook, who was, who was, um, who was, uh, who was Jesus in the um, Derek Jarman film, The Garden. He was an artist and, uh, and I got on well with him and stuff. But part of the message of my dissertation was... Um, the super conductivity of meaning and it was all you know very tight uh, philosophical argument of course and i thought i would um exemplify it further by adding a fake letter bomb this is a very 12th hour decision but i thought okay finished it all off typed it all up ten thousand words whatever let's put in a little fake letter bomb because what 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 conducts meaning any quicker than a bomb you know nobody kind of thinks i wonder what that means when they see a bomb they don't hang about. They just go, fuck, it's a bomb. Mm. Get out of here. And this was the super smart, clever idea of a slightly drug-addled you know, uh, art student at that stage. And um, um, so, of course, uh, you know, left it on an in-tray in the fine art department. And um, Roger, the, my tutor, didn't open it. My secretary opened it. Of course, looked inside, did the sensible thing, which was call the police, we call the bomb squad. It came out from like Haringey or somewhere in West London, something, and um, um, and just yeah, they just kind of full on alert into the building, threw my dissertation into the middle of the field, and promptly disposed of it. With like, I just blew it up, and of course, it wasn't a real bomb, so it didn't go off. And me- meanwhile, and I'm in town doing something. And, I get back home and my friends are like burying drugs in the garden. And uh, I said, what the fuck's going on? He said, shitload of trouble, the police are after you. And um, they're going to come around here. Thanks a lot. We've got to bury all our drugs in the garden. And yeah, it went, it went kind of nuts. And I was arrested and detained for a pleasant amount of hours. But I managed to talk my way out of it. Um, and luckily, my department supported me and didn't kick me out. Amazingly, Terry Frost, well-known painter, Terry Fro- uh, printmaker and painter, Terry Frost, defended me and said, "Well, he basically said he's it's just a dick. <laughs> it's a kind of <laughs> it's kind of dick smart-ass move that he he would do. It's not a real bomb. Sorry, I had to pay a fine, which nearly broke me. And um, yeah, so." The message there, kid, is don't send. I mean, can you imagine if that happened now, David? What world of pain I would be in if I'd sent a letter bomb these days? I mean, I would be record for ages. I wouldn't be able to travel anywhere. You can imagine. I'd be oh god, serious, yeah. serious trouble. Yeah. So at least we were a bit more light-hearted back in 1992 about bombs. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, because yeah, my I've got Irish ancestry, and they went, they were all over that and stuff, and um, you know. Blimey, that was questions. Yeah, that was that was scary stuff. So yeah, so so that was um, yeah your Brit pop period here, looking quite sort of um, yes. Was that a wake up call? Did did that change things? No, radically? I mean I was just I mean it was very I was very antagonistic. Um, I mean I generally um, I kind of at my sharpest when I can bristle against something. Still now I'm less antagonistic, but you know I can kind of. Um, if I had to really sharpen an argument, it's kind of getting into discourse with people and kind of um, 
back and forth. So I found art school in a way useful to something to push against, but I found the art world, and I still do, kind of unpleasant. And I've heard some of your interviews and you're talking about the pop industry in a, in a similar way. It does, you know, it turns to stomach some of the, it means the same with all of life. It's when capital enters the picture. You know, as soon as, as, soon as money's involved, you know, everything gets a bit dirty and sordid. And I think that was the kind of the thing about the art world, which is really difficult. You know, just the whole commerce of it seems very, um, well, just frankly distasteful. I mean, and um, I've been, I'm poor enough and I've been poor enough long enough to know that I shouldn't feel a distaste for money, but I still do in a way. Yes. And get too close to it, yeah. Yeah. I'd quite like some, but I just don't want any of the dirty stuff they have to do for it. The hard, the hard work or the... There is that famous Andy Warhol quote, isn't there, the best about money and art, and I can't remember quite how it runs, yeah. but it's... Like... It'll be pithy, yeah. It'll be pithy. We can, we can, we can, we can look at it. But, uh, we can... We that can... doesn't come to... But yeah. then you, you went on to do a master's after that and gave up fine art. That's right. I mean, I was very taken with something called the Art Strike, which actually did exist um, as a concert. It was a pamphlet by Stuart Hone. Um, it was kind of an anarchist, really, and I found it in the anarchist bookshop. And it's called the Art Strike. It's a very appealing concept, still is in a way, you know, because I've got lots of, you know, artists, lots and lots of artist friends, and I still make fine art myself. And the Art Strike was basically saying, well, you know, if these people abuse you and get you to put up shows for free and work for nothing and take 50%, gallery take 50% of your sales or something, why don't you just withdraw, as all of us, as all, as all labour in, in this horrible, the grinding wheels of capital can do, we can withdraw our labour, that's one of the few things we can do. Yes. Artists, it never seems to occur to artists, you know. But I mean, recently there's, there's a strike, isn't there? In the um, writers, the writers, the writers' guild. That's right, and um, it's had some had serious effect, and people have got noticed. And, um, so the art strike was something I kind of, kind of buy into this intellectually. I was a very, um, I was a very, uh, let's say, a serious person, but I was very kind of. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought about stuff a lot. I frozen, David. No, I, no, you're I still there. Freezing. I was always, I was just in deep thought. I mean, I think about things a lot, and um, I kind of like always want to find positions that make sense and can hold up, you know, at least for the duration of a dinner party or a couple of pints in a pub. Um, and anyway, I was. Um, I do. I, I really wanted to do some like a hard degree. Fine arts are great, great. It's a free studio for four years. It was in those days. I was all the beautiful years of grants and everything, full grants and stuff. So it was very nice. But I wanted to do a hard degree, so I did. Um, I did a philosophical masters, which was uh, aesthetics and visual theory. It was, and it was, it was actually UCL and the University of East London. Right. Um, combined on the first year. And that was that was good. I mean that was good. Um, really good. And a lot a lot of the stuff that I read and learned there's 
kind of stayed with me forever. Which is the point of education, I guess. Yes. So was this the kind of the the end of the 90s at this stage? That was B. So I graduated in 1992. I started my master's pretty much straight after, and I finished my master's in 1994. I was living in London then, and uh, yeah, moved to London in 93. Yeah, 93. Yep. Um, yeah, so like everything had changed. My music tastes had completely changed. I think I was, yeah. Very different, wasn't it? From 1988 to 1992, it doesn't sound very big. It seemed really big, kind of. Well, it was a lot of change in that period. We had come off the, you know, the Thatcher years to the John Major years, and I do remember the early 90s. There was still a lot of, I, you know, there was. It wasn't poverty, but there wasn't much money about, it, and there didn't seem to be much optimism at that little period. But then there wasn't much. That it seems like such a different period from then. Fast forward a few years to suddenly Britpop kind of world and the you know the Union Jack and and that kind of famous picture of the, the cover of Vanity Fair and the, the suddenly all these young modern artists and designers and painters and yeah. gallery you know the advertising everything just suddenly became like wow someone hit the you know the fifth gear and we were shooting along and. You know, then we had New Labour, Team Tony. The optimism was just flowing with the cocaine and champagne, wasn't it? At this stage, it all... Yeah, I mean, yeah, the YBA's Young British Artists, it was a bit before, yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't actually synced that up with that whole thing. I mean, I found it... Um, I mean, the music didn't appeal to me at all, ever, any of that period of music. Um, and I think I'd become less and less interested in kind of I don't just pop music I think I remember liking uh, things like smog and uh, uh, what were they called before the Palace Brothers and became Bonnie Prince but, you know, a few things you, like that. did you Mostly, love did you love Domino Records Domino yeah they seem to be a good label yeah yeah there's some some labels yeah, you could trust a little bit weren't they a bit like I mean the greatest label of all time is Shimmy Disc I don't know do you oh yes Kramer. Shimmy Disc yeah Kramer. Kramer, exactly yeah yeah, and pretty much. If you could buy anything blind on Shivy Disc, and you knew it was going to be like a revelation. Yes. And, uh, so that's how I found Half Japanese and uh, Daniel Johnston and the Boredoms and you know all kinds of the Tinklers um, who, who I'm kind of in touch with. And Half Japanese, so I've had contact with since, and I've worked with David Fair from Half Japanese and stuff. I think I've done so an interview with with Judge. Yeah. Oh, did you? Oh, wow, yeah. Because yeah. they're very different he, characters, yeah. They're very different, David. Because uh, I think, he, is he the one who was doing some, doing an album a day, not a song, an album a day or something quite? Oh, not an album a day. I think he wanted, how many did he do an album a week for a whole year during lockdown? Yeah. Something quite, you know. I, yeah, yeah. I must admit, I felt like, you know, I took an, an hour, an hour and 30 minutes, I thought, you know, he could have knocked off a, you know, a couple of records in this time, but, you know, he seemed happy yeah. while probably painting in the background. It was quite... Was he looking at his watch? Yeah, with paper <laughs> cuts. I think I'm not sure I haven't got any Jad Fair work in this room, but I've got some work in the living room by Jad's paper cuts. So the, the, outside, the outsider artist was, was definitely on your radar at this stage. Yeah, I think I don't think I knew that term at that time. Um, outsider artists, I did, and actually, still the most interesting things for me, I think, are, is outsider art. And um, 
an outsider music, that Erwin Chusid book came along later, the outsider, incorrect, you call that outsider art? Erwin Chusid had a um, program on WFMU, um, which is based in New York or New Jersey, and um, he did a program called, I think it's out, I think he called it outsider and incorrect music. Right. And it had, had stuff like, um, not, it's, oh, it's, what's the record that's the most, the hard, I'll send you a link, you can put it as a challenge to your listeners, the hardest lesson uh, record to listen to is by a guy called Little, oh, I can't remember, it's basically a guy who's got a puppet and uh, he does this diary of an unborn child set to music and it's basically, it turns out to be like an anti-abortion song and it's like this kind of creepy kid's voice. Erwin wow. shows it, yeah, it starts like, Mommy, I'm two months old and I'm just beginning to have nerves in my ears. And I'm just, it's all of this, like a kid. And then it's, and it finishes with nine months. Mommy, why did you kill me? Why did you want to kill me? And uh, yeah, so stuff like that. Nice. That nice. made a strong, it was nice, yeah, but it made a strong impression. It certainly made a strong impression and blur reinventing themselves for the third time. and. Yes. Did you get did you get into the American artists like um, Basquiat? As as fine artists, or just as a modern artist? You know the the cult of Basquiat. I didn't really get Basquiat. I mean, I can see his 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 importance and his cultural import and things. But to be honest, David, fine art never means much to me. It never means like you know we're talking about music and we were talking about even stuff that we don't even know much about like the basically rollers and our, our hearts are starting to race and talking about dollar and it means something to me you know Kandinsky or Pollock because I mean it's it's kind of just stuff on the wall it doesn't really mean much I think and I think that's just the basic problem with fine art and paintings compared to music music I mean, Wittgenstein says something like if you want to say something really important you'd use music Yes, and, you know, you wouldn't use a picture. M- music is the thing that truly kind of cuts, goes right past all our linguistic reasoning and semantic labelling, and goes straight to the whatever. You know, and that's why you've made a million podcasts and yes. a million records. You kind of, that's 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 the obsession. You know? The obsession. There, there are a few, aren't there? I was just thinking of, is it Turner who's done a, a, a painting, The Slave Ships, where, you know, it was like it, to the mast, that one. The one where they throw the slaves over when there's choppy waters because they want to sink the ship, but they can still get the insurance money of the dead. Oh, okay. That, 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 that old that? cheerful number. Yeah, yeah, they like those. And Jericho, what's the raft of the Medusa and things here? Yeah. Yeah. I, I like those kind of, I mean, I love going to galleries and it's a nice thing. It doesn't detain me long, you know. No. Especially, especially art shows. I can kind of go into an art show and kind of do it fairly quickly. It's not. Um, I suppose it doesn't have that durational thing like cinema and and, and music. Um, so, but it's yeah. So when do you? Is it the the millennium? You know, we were sort of all worried about the bug, weren't we? And planes dropping out of the sky when did your musical when did your musical kind of moment happen when did this shift in making your... well um i think i i mean i 
attempts to be in little bands at school and in university jam with people and stuff like that and I, I, I worked out retrospectively okay why didn't I particularly like this one was because probably like a lot of people the first thing I ever picked up was a guitar and I mean guitar is probably the last instrument you should really give some and actually the first thing I was given was like a a recorder that tastes of disinfectant oh yeah school yeah and you just blow and a triangle little triangle trying yeah I'd have, I'd have liked a triangle I was never trusted trying to do a solo one at yeah okay like extended technique <clears throat> um but yeah being handed a guitar so I think there was a there was an acoustic guitar in our house so it wasn't ours but me and my brother used to have it and then just it's like okay guitars yeah yeah three chords and the truth and all that and just like pick up a guitar and even now Years later, it still takes me 40 minutes to go from F to a C. You know, it's like, fuck it, who made that? I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> On piano, it's so easy to do that change. Why on a guitar is it, is it so ridiculous? So it never became a native thing. So it kind of put me off. I can't make music. I can't be like, I can't be like those people. And I think it distanced me from music making. Even though I could sing and I knew I'd be able to write lyrics. And I was very, and I knew what was a, even, you know, I, I was kind of knew what pretty much was what was good and bad by that stage where I decided I did. Uh, so it wasn't until I got like a little Casio synthesizer years later, like early 90s, I think, 93, when I was in London, just starting mucking about. And the other thing that was liberating was realizing oh, maybe I can do it on my own. I don't need to not rely on other people. Um, but you know, if you're if you come from a fine art background, you just you're a control freak because you you'd be able to, you can you can control everything. There, there are artists who collaborate, but generally they don't want to want to say, David, would you like to finish off my painting for <laughs> me? That's the last thing you're going to do unless you're very liberated. So, you know, that control freakery, I thought I can be my own Phil Spectre in my bedroom um, and make things with a cassette. And cassette culture is very important. And then little things like, like hearing Daniel Johnston and hearing those cassettes and hearing, oh, fucking hell, you can be the greatest living songwriter on planet Earth and make stuff that sounds that rough. You know, so that fidelity, and that was definitely that low fidelity thing started being more acceptable. I guess it, because people say, oh, there's, there's, there's lo-fi things and stuff and primitive things in punk era, but mostly people going into studios and having reasonable amounts of time in studios. And the products are still quite finished for me, whereas those Daniel Johnson cassettes or those early Sebado cassettes, they did sound like, very distinctively achievable you know what i mean yes <clears throat> and almost had an aesthetic of their own that it was a layer of the the grain of those things had a had a was was like another an instrument like an overtone to the thing yeah and that was yeah um, so yeah that, that's that's kind of how it started and then just really yeah obsessively yeah and it's, talking about Jad Fair, but I could write, and still could if you wanted to kind of write three songs this afternoon. That's no problem. 
quality yes. might be a problem. Finish might be a problem. The output's not going to be a problem for me. I'm not going to dry up with ideas. I'm not going to be stuck for words or, you know. So, yeah, it was just that. And I don't, I didn't, I didn't really, um, didn't really have any. This is with the art. I didn't really have any um, kind of, a, whatever I would call it, really, any professionalization of this thing in mind at all. I had no vision of it at all. There was no, there was no route to market. I didn't want to be a route to market. So it's kind of things like the cassette underground in London at that time was quite, there was a little bit of a cassette underground. People used to, I don't know if you remember this phenomenon of people would come around like maybe put in the carrier bag and put some, you know, kind of get out a selection of cassettes out and things. And that used to happen at gigs, certainly gigs I went to. Little, yes. little flyers and magazines, which were catalogues for like, what is this stuff? What's going on here? And this amazing um yeah so like we were talking before about presenting paying 3.99 for something she hadn't heard and i think there's still there was still an allure wasn't there it was still an allure of going to a record shop seeing a cover and thinking wow you know you'd have to be very incurious to look at the cover of trout mass replica and think god i wonder what that sounds like you know yes it's similar when you were i read in these little you know, kind of you know, descriptions of like obscure cassettes and think, God, I wonder what that sounds like. Um, so when did when did you form a musical combo? I, well, perhaps I never have. I mean, the musical combo is really, it's really what's in my head and people who I can coerce to, to join me at times, which has usually been my partner and is now my wife. And it's generally, I mean, I use the word coercion slightly jokingly, but I do have to kind of go, oh, Kazuko, can you, can you, come, can you just do some backing vocals today? It's just too high for me. Or I just want to do a bit of percussion on this thing and we can do it together. And he kind of enjoys it while we're doing it, but very, very shy about it, very, very inhibited, did not want to join this interview. Of course, would not get a word in edgeways. So it's, <laughs> it's my, it's my, you know, so I mean, I think, um, yeah, and but only only when I play live, that's the only kind of time where I, okay, well, God, I've actually got to recruit people. Um, but the control freak in me would still almost prefer there to be seven of me, yeah, and seven of me to be playing things even not as well as the people I get in, because all the people I get in to help me, they're always miles better musicians than me. Yes. So yeah. you must have been, so your first release was Keep Still, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the first, yeah, there was three cassettes that came out. Um, kind of like I said, they, they did have a commercial life, they kind of sold. And one, well, I made one cassette for a festival in Holland called The Impact, which is an art festival, art and music impact festival in Utrecht. And that was for some lobby music. And then um, through a friend um, sent... So all of this time, you're talking about the, the, the golden new dawn of new labour and all that new optimism. And I managed to leave England completely by, um, I remember I remember the night of the election, Tony, was it 97? 97, uh, yeah, I think it was 97, May. Yeah. 
May was it? Yeah, it was nice and warm, wasn't it? A lovely sunny day. And you think, okay, this time. And uh, and on the nights, um, just as the polls are closing, we, I was doing an interview for um, um, for a little magazine, interviewing a band called the Radar Brothers, an American band. They were playing in North London somewhere, and sitting on the lawn there and talking about, yeah, I think this time new labor and all of that next day all that euphoria and within a couple of months i'd actually left england and didn't come back for 13 years so all of that period you were talking about in great i'm sure very accurate detail i kind of missed i mean i heard about it but i didn't experience it firsthand um so even so even that first record um was kind of being you know the, the, the tracks that I'd left behind and given cassettes to someone called Tracy, who's who ran Dreamy Records. She used to work for Creation. She was a Californian woman, and uh, and um, she liked the songs and wanted to put some stuff out. Santa Spree's album out, and, and she put two songs on comp compilation, which were played quite. Yeah, I mean, quite a few times, particularly one called I Wish I'd Been an Extra in Dawn of the Dead, and that was being played on, on radio. Um, John Peel played it, and it was nighttime radio in the usual places and stuff. And But I had never heard this at all. I just heard, actually, weirdly, even in a letter, I even got a letter from a friend, Luke, kind of weeks later saying, oh, I heard your record of yours on the radio. So it's very... Um, it's like a, you know, it's kind of like a telegram from overseas type experience. It wasn't very close up to it, even as it was happening. Yes, God, that's amazing. So John Peel sort of was was the sort of the great gatekeeper, wasn't he? Really, during this period. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like that's you know, in a way, um, that that's kind of done really. I think when you get that kind of. Uh, that's kind of sometimes all you ever want, isn't it? Just someone. Well, I think a lot of people, especially in the eighties, when they were possibly possibly at university, but definitely unemployed, and it was like, well, what are we going to do on the job seekers allowance? And it's like, oh, we'll be yeah. about. Let's just get a single on John Peel, and it's like, oh my god, he wants a session, and then it's almost like we might as well keep going with this because there's nothing else to do, and and thus sometimes that sort of five-year narrative of the indie band from the 80s, really. So, um, Yeah, I mean, I'm, it seems weird to say oh, I, I kind of missed it. I don't think I missed anything, because I'm sure if I'd have been in London, like, a, you know, I'd have been grindingly poor as ever in London and um, scratching around and, you know, I'd have heard it on the radio and it'd been nice for a bit. Maybe I could have done a session. We did, we did come back to play some dates in the UK and... Did a session for Gideon Co. And um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't, I'm not some um, that part of me. I don't, I don't, I don't know if you have to be pushy. I don't think those people you've interviewed, those kind of C86 shambling people, they, they weren't pushy or professionalized people. No, they weren't. But I don't, I don't know exactly. But I'm not, I'm not pushy at all. I mean, Tracy was useful because Tracy's like, I'm from California. And uh, of course, can big you up in that really unembarrassed way that you can't <laughs> do, you can't do yourself. You can't really. No, I think a few a few of those people from the eighties who, in people, you know, like 
I remember the young marble giants and the jazz put your Pat Fish. You spoken to them? And it was, yeah. yeah. And I think that they were always like so unsure of themselves. And they would say, but what yeah, would it yeah. be like to be uh, to be Sting, to be that confident? It's just yeah. like you couldn't imagine it, to have that much confidence where everyone else is just scrabbling around. I do remember the guy from the young marble giants at one stage was like, I couldn't even afford a new pair of pants. And I just remember thinking, no, Prince must, um, Sting must felt a long way away from his kind of sense of reality, really. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I guess, I mean, I think the difference is the drive. I, I, I think I heard you talk in another interview. I can't remember what it was, but I heard not long ago, you talked about the concept of this, of, of selling out one of your interviewees mentioned selling out and it's like i've got to explain this to the kids because it's a concept that doesn't exist but it was a massive thing wasn't it and politically for me it's kind of still is artistic integrity and everything you know and that was still even if you said here's here's a million dollars anthony um you can use um this um use one of your songs to advertise a steakhouse um you know i'm not going to take the money you know still there is still you know, and still means something. It may be, may be a lost battle, but I'm not sure if it is. You know, the struggle has many, many fronts, and I think quite good to win out and get to the end. You know, just not be a cunt. <laughs> kind of, to put it, you know, there's, there's there's a kind of a victory in that. Maybe very pyrrhic victory, but you know, I think. Uh, I think of, I think a, a few bands realized they really regretted doing the signing the record deal with the the bigger label rather Ages, than the, yeah. the, the, the slightly smaller label. Though sometimes the smaller label was hopeless and you could still get ripped off. I think a few people just wish they hadn't made that EMI, you know, Warner's music. Even Virgin, I think a few people went, "Oh, Virgin will be lovely," and it's like, "Oh my God, we've made the biggest mistake of our lives. This is this is not good." So. It's tricky because I think most people just wish they could have just kept it going without the business. Even Les from the Bay City Rollers, I remember that interview, he was saying that it was like he just wanted to sing songs. He's, he just wished he knew somebody that could have just sorted everything out and said, yeah. just go to work, do your songs. You won't get ripped off. I know what I'm doing. But obviously, you know, it never quite happened, possibly towards the end. But all he wanted to do was perform at that, you know, caravan park and, yeah. you know, get a yeah, bit of cash yeah. and then, you know, have a nice night's sleep and get up and do it again and relive those kind of moments, you know, even though yeah. it was going to be in front of a, a hundred people who were, you know, slightly un, unsure, a bit, bit unsteady on their feet, but, you know. There's a, there's a simple pleasure in that. I remember yeah. reading, I think it's in the John Peel book, actually, and I think it's the doing some radio one event and i can't remember whether it was like autumn towers or something but for some reason on there's some kind there is some kind of like kind of fake castle thing with a with a moat around it oh yes I does remember. this ring a bell yeah does it does ring a bell, ring a bell with 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 i think it was tony blackburn one of those superstar radio one djs in a speedboat yeah. with a womble 
That's right. Okay, because the wobble was it was causing all the commotion. Yeah? And it was a bit like, you know, you felt like you were tripping a bit at this stage, thinking... Doesn't I mean, he, I think he, the, he says to Lee John Waters or something, he says something like, oh my God, they've got over the moat or something like that. The yeah, kids are kind of climbing the ramparts. So I think the kids is... were getting in the water and drowning a bit, and there <laughs> yeah. was somebody in a speedboat with a wobble <laughs> whizzing around, and it was Excellent. just it was just fantastic, you know. And, uh, I'm glad we've remembered this. You know, because really. the, the Radio 1 DJs were as popular as the you know the artist weren't they and, oh God, I, just, and I, just started, I still just started watching the reckoning with my with my tea tonight and steve yes. Cougar and the jimmy savile thing yeah maybe. and it didn't end well did it really but then did you with your you know because you've got you know a lot of albums out on and mm. and did the once you got the first first release did you then think this was going to be something that you're going to keep doing for the rest of your life well i think it's it's like, I mean, I'm not a musician. Um, I'm, I'm an artist that makes music, and my mindset is like, you know, I'm an artist, and you just you're kind of cursed with it. And that sounds a bit romantic and idealized, but you you just kind of stuck with it, and you kind of think, oh, fucking, I wish I'd been born with a love of, you know, a love of plumbing or something, or a great desire to, um, you know. Um, make TV commercials or something kind of it could be monetized and um, pays the mortgage, but you're kind of stuck with it. So it wasn't so much thinking, okay, I'm going to, I'm 55 now, I'm going to be making records. I couldn't imagine stopping, you know, it's a bit like, you know, I think you're always going to find some outlet for your insane music knowledge, David, and your insane desire and curiosity about musicians or artists or something and I don't think you're going to stop you might find other avenues it might get perverted into something else or getting you know but I think the thing I never thought is like how can I professionalize this how can I become sting you know there was never any and I think possibly like you were talking about uh, Paul Les um, from the Rollers it's not that those people are ever you know, I think there's something pure at the heart of them. They're kind of the professionalization happens around them, doesn't it? They're kind of made into they're made into cornflakes, you know, and the you know the grinding wheels of capital crush us all to dust, you know. Yes. Um, it, it, so then we're not unique, you know, but I think you either just kind of give reality a big swerve and I've always given reality a bit you can see that I give reality a big swerve hopefully um and which is not very good you know for day-to-day -day living it's quite hard going sometimes yes but, um, but but your last release farewell for tonsils this fanfare, was fanfare for tonsils yeah what did I say uh, I think you said farewell for tonsils, but you might be more accurate because I did lose my tonsils. That's why. That's why here I call <laughs> fanfare for tonsils. It's kind of yeah. Blah, 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 yes. Tonsils, so was yeah. this this was your lockdown project? I had two. I mean, it's kind of lockdown was long enough, wasn't it? But um, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I um, I think I, I I made some total of incident blank was mostly recorded in lockdown, and then fanfare for tonsils after that. Fanfare for tonsils. The slightly different characteristic of it is that I was given a cancer diagnosis in between those two. So Fanfare for Tonsils does have the kind of the, um, the shroud of death over it, which everyone loves in the, in the pop album. 
Um, so that that kind of gave it some of the um, the content, uh, you know, difference in content for some of those those songs. But yeah, I mean, um, I kind of, I'm kind of in a permanent lockdown. I don't. I, I don't it's nice to be paid furlough and things for, for that period, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, it was nice to have just given time, time to spend eight hours a day. I mean, my, um, my brother's very similar and um, it's quite monkish the way we work, you know, like my wife will have to come in and say like, it's, it's 10 o'clock or it's it has to remind me to eat and stuff it's a kind of like that kind of um you're just in the zone and you cannot you cannot be removed without being yanked out um so i've always been a bit like that yes so yeah um it was a to answer your question a kind of a lockdown project but that sounds kind of like had a plan to it or something yeah but it was there was no difference actually. Does, yeah. is, is is the is the music a part time? Is it a, a sort of a side hustle with some other occupation as well, or are you able to devote all well, your time? Well, it was. Well, it was. I mean, until um, until I kind of had to retire, I mean, mostly through ill health. Um, oops, and my hairdressers come off, listeners, and um, yeah, I mean, I'd. Yeah, I mean, it's no, no, never been able to earn enough money from it at all to to to, to live off. So it's always been yeah, a side hustle. My my, we talked about my masters earlier, and I, later I, um, I was language education. I was a, I was a, t a teacher, and that's why I got me to Greece and living in Japan. And then I became an academic director, and I worked in publishing for a bit in Japan. And then I when I returned to the UK in two thousand nine, I still carried on working in language education and I did a master's in linguistics so my kind of later field and my professional expert field is linguistics language education second language acquisition and, and that kind of area and um yeah so that kind of, that that pays that pays the rent that pays a mortgage and and uh and it's very enjoyable occupations good the good very pleasant thing to do when I work with teachers are general generally liberal nice people to work with and you know I was interaction with students is always yeah it's always it's always novel you know it's, it's um, there's always something different yes absolutely so I, yeah, I enjoyed that so yeah it's the side hustle and did you did you get the all clear on the cancer front? No, no, it's uh, no happy endings to this podcast. Uh, I'm still going through treatment. I um, and it was uh, when I, I this is uh, I think uh, December 2020. Um, I was diagnosed with cancer, and then a bit a bit later, um, a couple of months later, um, they said, "I mean, this this." this my oncologist said this, this, this cancer is incurable and it's uh, they tried it they tried to def they desperately tried to avoid the word terminal these days uh, for all their worth but they the oncologist told me median survival with the um symptoms i had which was a head and neck cancer and my liver median survival so the line in the middle of the graph is 14 months 
So that was that was um, December 2020. So I've outlived the median survival and probably pushing up the graph a little bit. That's mostly due to, as I said, socialized healthcare and having having a miraculous uh, partner in my wife and uh, supporter and nutritionist and cheerleader and everything else. And um, yeah, still going. I'm doing a clinical, all very quatermass. I'm doing um, this kind of a trial of a, a genome-based therapy at the moment. Um, it's a kind of tablet that I take, which uh, as, as, as we speak, are altering some fancy protein in my body right in a way to arrest the cancer yeah so is I this mean, the gloomy the gloomy view yeah it's terminal and you die of it everyone dies of stuff everyone dies of life and it's just it's just shifting away shifting my mindset from oh yeah 14 months which is hard when someone tells you you've got 14 months probably statistically it's hard to kind of get it out of your head and not think okay right better do stuff better to do a bit of mortal housekeeping and um, get shit together and yeah. do things you want to do and do worthwhile things as that carries on you kind of have to okay now i've got to i've got to use and to use it's like a phrase i don't like that much either not much more than terminal cancer but living with cancer which is kind of a practice you know you just you just live with it manage it get on with it you can see that i can hold a fairly coherent conversation for a while in pleasant company and I can still do a lot of the things I want to do. Don't have quite the same energy, but yeah. Um, but I mean that makes there's a lot, there's a lot of upsides to being told you've got X amount of time to live. You do kind of get very um, not just focused, but you get kind of Stuff, stuff is really clear. It's like it was fairly clear-headed anyway. But you kind of okay. This stuff's important. That doesn't matter. This thing's valuable. This thing's not. Um, this thing brings me joy. This thing doesn't. I kind of you kind of lose a lot of fear as well. I think why well, my person left lost kind of fear. Strangely, well, all the kind of minor tertiary fears. They, they kind of fall away um yeah so yes. it's, it's not bad i reckon i thoroughly thoroughly recommend it david to not really <laughs> i don't well i got diagnosed with cancer oh, wow. in, in, okay. to 2016 oh, wow. so so i you know well, so done. yes i have my what, what, what was your diagnosis you may mind me prying kid, kidney kidney cancer kidney. okay so I mean, did was, you have did you have to have surgery then or yes quite quite it looks like a, a the I got a photograph it looks like a bread knife had gone around my 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 stomach area around here Jeez. and um yeah and again it was a you know I'd just gone to the doctors and then surgeon I suppose I just um yeah just on you know I was a bit of a hypochondriac anyway and and luckily the 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 doctor i'd sort of felt a bit poorly over the summer of 2015 and yeah. she did a bit of tapping and went oh your liver's large and i just thought whatever um but then in her mind she probably thought oh my god you you, you know this is not good something seriously wrong so then i had the mri scan yeah and they were still confused why my liver's so big but then i went to um 
the kidney, you know, um, yeah, the kidney surgeon, and sort of walked in and slightly breezy, sort of feeling quite okay. This was in December, January time, January yeah. time of 2016. Yeah. And they looked all very serious. And then he had this sort of the the scans there and you know pointed out the dark areas and went, oh this is not good. And it's like We've all seen that Woody Allen film, yeah. Uh, Fucking hell! What, you know, were you, what was? I mean, did you have? Did you have a moment where you weren't sure what your prognosis would be? Because you're often left waiting for some other results, aren't you? you kind of, yeah. Well, I, sure he if... was. He was like, "No, we're going to get you in next month, and we're going to open you up, and we got to get it ASAP." And it was yeah. just like, and I was a bit like, "Oh my god!" I just remember walking out, just thinking shit i never you don't expect those words do you you've got cancer it's, it's weird that we don't expect it though isn't it because when you hear like things like oh one in two and you think well why don't i expect those it's quite weird isn't it that we yeah we don't we think it's something from a film you just don't you just think i never you know and i just remember yeah. a blurry period and then having the operation but now i'm just in the world of i'm still having scans and yearly oh, you get Checks, yeah, that's good. So I, I just had a CT scan two weeks ago. So um, oh, good. But it's, did, are you? Did you have to? Did that kind of change your life in terms of like diet or just how um, you thought about things? Or, or I suppose I'm, some some. I'm going to record an interview with every single. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I mean, I suppose in a way you just you forget, you know because sometimes you think I should just be like I should be dead that's really it you know kidney yeah, yeah. cancer 2016 it would have spread through if he hadn't caught it and I would be gone so yeah. I should I shouldn't worry about all the things I worry about but I still do and I still fret about all those small things and it's interesting I, isn't it? and yeah. then I just go oh god you know you should be dead so don't worry about everything so much but you know there is that yeah it's a weird one I don't you know I just have a huge respect for the medical profession in a way because it's gotcha. like gotcha. you know they 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 get on with this kind of 12-hour shift and they must deal with all these people those appointments must be so you must have that folder of all your letters and all the documents and it's like jesus yeah. how did that you know and you dread seeing that letter on the doorstep because you just think is it thick is it thin is it thin? Uh, yeah. is it a good is it a good letter is it a bad letter um, you know, what does my surgeon, what did he find last time? And and, and also phone calls. Sometimes after a scan, you get that, oh, yeah. we just found something on your, you know, lungs, and which ha has happened. I've had two of them. It's I like, think, or, you know, just like, oh, well, you need to come and have another scan because we found check, something. Check. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's almost worse because you think, oh, fuck, it's come back. Because I think that's the thing, isn't it? You just think, yes. I, can't, I can't deal with the yeah. struggle. I think that's the thing that I would, I, I find hard. The thought of the particularly having that sense of reprieve because you can't help thinking <clears throat> yeah beat it and you know everyone's going to relax at that point aren't they and love to yeah. lose. you're clear but you're never none of us are really ever clear clear because right? i guess so... you want to ask two questions you know they're stupid but you say yeah how long have i had it and kind of why did it happen you yeah know, when, yeah when when did it happen and and how if i hadn't been picked up with it now how long would I've had before it got really bad? I think might have been the third question, but it's like we don't know. But you know, it was it yeah. was you know with Anna, and it was kind of weird thinking they've taken something out of your body, yes. and they've sliced it and they've just thrown it, and then they've analysed yeah. it. And you think, do you I, know, do, do I get that back? <laughs> Can I make an art project out of that? I did yeah. get. I don't know if you got it, whether you had surgery, but yeah. you you have to keep Absolutely. signing things, don't you? You, you know your date yes. of birth yeah. and. 
and they and you do you film rights they said you know if we film this you know oh, and really? if we yeah, I feel well, that probably was there, but I, yeah, I was just signing stuff very quickly. You know, if you die, that's fine. Really? Yeah, what? Yeah, and then they start drawing on your body, don't they, with a pen this way to the this way to your kidney, anything. I kind of had little tattoos. I think that's just a lineup scan, isn't it? Little tattoos on your body, but yeah, it was it was it was very because that happened all around the same time that Bowie had died, and I just remember right. thinking. 2016 he, he died he, he had he had liver cancer did he exactly? yeah which is a rock and roll cancer isn't it Lou and, Reed and Barry and, and it was that kind of going through those MRI scans and all those blood tests yeah. and all that stuff yeah, and you yeah. think oh my god now it does and then the album Black Star was for a while just too much to listen to yeah I bet, I bet yeah especially because you had so much emotional investment with him as a person yes. from your child and everything and all the rest of yeah. it must have been can you listen to it now a little bit it still it still does something kind of you know that kind of beat and that kind of sort that mournful quality of um black star is is quite horrendous actually because mm. that line you look up here i'm in heaven i've got scars that can't be seen it's just like yeah. oh god yeah. yes, i think please. the um he added layer to all that is because he kept it completely secret didn't he? I mean, that was like one achievement for such a public figure yes not have did... anything leak out or to get yes. to the press or david's been unwell but the thing but also his family and that they've not spoke or said anything and because yeah. mostly they would like go right let's cash in let's get the book let's get a dark documentary but yeah they haven't. They haven't whispered a word, have they? What? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a David Brown. I, I kind of. I have great respect for the man, but the, the, the music never kind of just, as they say in, in quick terms, connected with me particularly. Mm. But um, yeah, I saw. I saw him at the Saatchi Gallery once, standing around looking every inch like David Bowie, like he wanted your pop stars to look, you know, and it was just holding a glass of champagne, holding courts. And I know people who worked with him. I've met people who worked quite, and they will speak very highly of him. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's a dignified way out, isn't it? I think quite, mm -hmm. quite well managed, <laughs> yes. beautifully, beautifully managed, you know, in, in a good way, I think. Yeah. Yes. So um, what, so think, yeah. with your next project, I mean, do you have one sort of as we speak? As we speak? Well, um, what and what? I had chemotherapy through the winter. You, you, could you avoid chemo? Did, did you? you yeah, I did avoid that. The surgery kind of. Okay, yeah, that's good. And it wasn't worse because you know you get you get fourteen pages of possible side effects. And I didn't get. Um, um, I kept my hair. I'm only wearing this headdress because I'm a twat, not because I've lost my hair or anything. Um, and so I, I kind of fairly got off fairly light with the side effects, but. I had very little energy right through a very long winter. And so it's kind of, okay, it's a period where I just don't have the energy just to get the stuff out, set the studio up, start working on something. I made a couple of bits of music for some soundtrack commissions. But um, all I had was like an hour of lucid thought a day, like properly in the zone, okay, this is quality control 
is, yeah. is, is working and I'm able to do something. So I kind of, I started writing and I, I, um, I also started gathering old, but this is a very, okay, you don't think you have long left kind of um, impulse where I just started to gather old bits of writing that I had, bits of poems, scraps of stuff, short stories, just from years and years back, even right back to the age of 19, just kind of writing, type, basically typing about nothing more than that, and then kind of putting them together. I've written about music, I've written music reviews and things in the past, um, written kind of things about aesthetics and linguistics and, and quite just kind of a mulch of stuff. And eventually I kind of thought, well, this is what everyone's, you know, if you know, people don't add up to much, you know, I don't, I mean, one of the, the greatest torments um, really um, for me is, is the thing I was talking a bit about earlier, I was thinking that you're special. And, and as an artist, you have to kind of way think that you're special. And of course, that's a great torture. It's a great torture because none of us are. We're all just nothing, as you know, from your your own situation when you're staring that scan, you know, in, in the in the in the oncologist's room and stuff. You kind of know that you're nothing. And you'll, if you're remembered for anything, you'll be misremembered and nothing adds up to much. It's, it's so much easier to just kind of let go of that. If I could let go of my the ego and all of the stuff that goes along with it, worrying about my legacy or the art, the stuff I leave behind, it'd be, it'd be really nice. But I couldn't help gathering this stuff together. And I've got it, the title for it, it's going to be Non-Events Add Up, and I'm going to put it into a little book. I did enough have an offer of it being published, but I actually wanted to make it an art book as well, and they just wanted to put the text in. Um, so I'm going to put it together. So that's my project, kind of doing that. I might set some of the some of these pieces, these texts to music, because usually I write the other way around music first. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that might be it. Yeah, I'll, I'll hopefully get round to that. I will get round to that. Yeah, kind of, I'll apply myself to that. So it'll be it'll be a piece of writing. Um, uh, as, the, as the next thing I want to finish finish off but I still play music I still I found a great joy I, for a long time I've been a real fan of particularly watching free improvised music I always loved jazz um, and so free improvised music and I started playing free improvised music and I don't know if you've ever dabbled do you play music do you? no I don't so what's kept you from playing it I think the acoustic guitar I went I had some lessons yeah, the same thing yeah, it puts everyone off, yeah? it's just terrible just couldn't you just it just sounded no. like yes it just couldn't do them cool it's the worst thing to be given if someone had given you a drum or something or something ukulele would have been perfect i guess would have been, it would have been a, a step but it's still a little challenge but so um yeah free improvisation is a really it's a really nice way in for people extremely proficient musicians and people who are kind of beginners and and it's just it's just such a great thing if you've not had the joy of playing collectively, which there is a great joy of a bit like being in a choir or something, I guess, playing collectively in a group and making stuff up. That's all it is, making stuff up. 
but not jamming, not becoming the boring, you know, playing some boring blues things and boogieing along. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of actually trying to be, you know, the, the name for it, I guess, is non-idiomatic. Try and if it becomes a bit like folk music, stop it, stop it, stop it. Becomes yes. a bit like this. You're trying to always trying to be invent and be just kind of it's better to more liberating to think make, I'm making sound, we're making noises, we're making um you know sometimes you know there's something probably a lot of those musicians who played on black star were from kind of a pre-improvisation background and the jazz background and they probably were quite schooled in that and i think it's just a great thing it's a great thing for anyone to do i'd recommend people just do it and just start and there's one in your area start one up and, and free improvisation could um Kind of liberate the world, the world, and make a lot of people happy. Yeah, so a lot of people have a barrier to, to, to making music. I think probably less so than they used to because they can they can make it on a computer, or, you know, in their own room. But it's never it's not collective. You know, sending files to a mate and getting a file back is not the same as spontaneous, you know, intuitive creation with someone. So, I, so in the last, I don't know how many years, six, seven years, I've, I've done that, and that's been a real interesting outlet and really, really, it's a really beautiful thing to do. Yeah. Yes. God, that's amazing. And do you do any collaboration with your brother at all? I have done. I've coerced him into joining Santa Spree's on, on his 50th birthday. I made him be the drummer. He didn't know he was going to be the drummer, but he just turned up in Glasgow, thinking he was just going to watch. And I said, here are Graham, happy birthday. Well, here's your best friend over from Copenhagen. And by the way, he's, you're going to be on drums tonight. And my brother being a little bit shyer than me, but not, not much, he just went, yeah, okay, fuck it, paying audience, I don't give a shit, floor toms, <laughs> smacking the drums. And actually plays with just the kind of zeal and... Yeah, energy that I, I kind of require. I mean, yeah. In fact, I'd much, in a way, I'd much rather have you in my band as a complete novice who hated the acoustic guitar than someone who's been to Juilliard or something. So I think yes. I'd, I think I'd find more to like in what you did with a acoustic guitar, even if it was throw the thing against the wall. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, so there's still there's still potentially lots to do here. Isn't there's, still, there? there's still hope. Yes, there's still hope. I can see you. You're professional. You're already a professional. I'm trying to just to, to pivot towards to optimism. But I mean, yes, I yeah, I, yes, yeah, we can, we, we live in it? we live in hope and we live on it as well. That's important. You know, we live on hope. And you were talking about that thing about when you had your cancer diagnosis and how amazing it was. You thought, oh, I'll never think about trivial stuff again. But like you told me, you still do. You have low-level anxieties about nonsense. And it probably irritates that you do. The human mind has got probably a very, probably an amazing ability to just compartmentalise stuff, particularly compartmentalise death. You know, just put it over here. It's slightly more extreme in the English, but I think it's probably quite important that humans do put death over there. I'll leave that to later. That stuff i don't need to lose much sleep over that yeah you know what i mean and i can worry about 
oh, what was the name of that fellow who played on uh, Walk on the Wild Side or whatever? You know, kind of important things in life. Walk on the Wildlife. Interesting enough, most of those musicians were from England, weren't they? In sort yeah, of just all very, of them, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Very standard jazz bands who were just very like, oh, yeah, well, we'll come down and work with Mick Ronson and David Bowie. And That's right. It's crazy. Because the, the guy who played the, it's the guy who played the bass, was not, not the sax part. I think the guy who played the bass, didn't he get like £30 session fee or something? Probably. I, he heard, I think he's from this area, he's from the southwest. And I remember an interview with him and he was quite happy with his 30 quid. And it's been sampled like a trillion times over that baseline. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's, I mean, they must have just all been very, like, God, this guy's such a, you know, because I know Mick Ronson just couldn't believe, you know, Lou Reed and his inability to tune a guitar. And, Is that right? You know, yes. Mm-hmm. And just thinking, God, he's such a non-musician. And yet, you know. Yeah, yeah. And these these kind of very sort of traditional English jazz guys thinking, who is this yeah. New York guy yeah. with his slurred accent and his bad attitude? But then, yes, it's, it's there's a brilliant there's a brilliant series which I'm quite fascinated by called um, it's on Sky Arts mostly now. Okay, it's, it's called the Classic Albums series. Yeah. And there's, you know, and, and to be honest, I could watch any of them, even if it's simply read or Phil Collins or any, because yeah. there's always an interesting story behind some of those songs, which you think, oh, interesting. I, you know, obviously I'm not going to go and buy the albums, but the Lou Reed one, um, you know, Transformer is, is a good one. You know, it's okay. a really, it's Sky, does Sky Arts, do you have to, do you have to it's have free. Sky? Is it free? Okay. Well, it's on one of those free view boxes on channel uh, 14 or something like right. that. Okay. But look, you know, because Channel Four BBC used to be arty and very interesting. And then mm. they've obviously got no money. And Sky Art seems to have picked up lots picked of interesting yeah. stuff. I know yeah. there was a there was a there was a thing about Dex's the other day, and I um, someone, someone said it's on Sky Arts, and I had no idea how to find it. They did say it's free. Then I thought I still don't know how to find it. But... Yeah, it's worth. It might be worth trying to find okay. it this winter because. Yeah. Because you wouldn't believe, yeah. mostly, mostly, there's one thing a week that you think, actually, I'm really pleased to have recorded that, because that's oh, yeah, a good yeah. one. But, um, I, I, love, I love a biopic, you know, a rock biopic, even if it's about bands I don't like or anything. The same with the rock documentary and stuff. It's just the stories, a bit like your podcast, there's stories, but I think they're just, it's, it's the kind of story, and it's in a milieu that you are interested in. It doesn't matter if it's, yeah, artists you respect or not. Yes. something kind of there's, there's a common like a like you were saying before about your interviewees there's often a commonality in a lot of those stories and there's a kind of a three-act structure that's that's quite common to a lot of them and often they all end in tragedy or farce or <laughs> a bit of both yeah but i think the one thing that has always has come through is that everybody music is something that everyone has come back to they can't let it go it's like yeah. It's got me, you know, I've I've had a day job, I've done other things, but I still want to come back and play music again. And, and yeah. or they haven't let let go. It's had to sort of just go into much more of a, you know, any, like an, yeah, yeah, or an evening class on a Wednesday afternoon, you know, yeah. Wednesday evening, they'll just, they'll play the, mu- you know, music with a few friends. Yeah. But, um, but they, it's still there. And then suddenly it's like, no, I can't stop this anymore. I'm going to have to. I just need to do it one more time. And it's like not playing in 
front of many people but it's just like I just want to put another record out I just want to put another have another few dates even if it's in the back of a library go. yeah just one yeah just one more ride on the carousel before you croak I think a lot of it's a bad impulse in a way have you mm. seen that what's the guy I can't remember his name the guy who's in the New York Dolls and there's a film about him is it Arthur Kay? Or... That's right, yeah, Arthur Kane. yes, you're right. And he's he works in a public library, doesn't he, for years, and he's kind of well-known as a librarian. None of his co-workers have any idea that he was in a New York Dolls or anything. It's amazing. Yeah, and, and then Morris, uh, Norris, Morrissey gets them to reform for his meltdown, doesn't he? Oh, is that, was it Morrissey's doing, was it? And I think, I think he died soon after that. Yes, not long yet. I think the film goes right through to that, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but then, but those, you know, those are interesting stories. You should get David Fair on here because David's from half Japanese because he mm. worked in the public library for years as well. And he kind of stopped being full-time music and realised, you know, I've got to do sensible things. I've got kids now and stuff. I know a member of the Graham, Graham Parker and the Rumours. One, yeah. one of the Rumours was a library worked in the library as well quite not clear. not with philip larkin but probably but the other yeah. i don't know if you saw today keith richards was saying that with his arthritis it's made him change his guitar chords a bit but you know he said he's, he's still learning he's still at school learning the guitar wow. i think that's great you know keith is going to keep going isn't he even with one yeah. thing, he'll still be yeah. playing that open chord so there you go. Yeah. So look, just last question. If you were, yeah. if you were, you know, could have whispered something to your like 16-year-old self, even if that 16-year-old self ignored mm. any advice, what is there anything in particular you thought, yeah, that would have been quite handy? Don't send a letter bomb. Yeah, I thought the letter bomb was probably a, one of those. A misstep on reflection, but uh... Yeah, but I still came out with a first, so I'm not sure what else I could, you know. So it kind of been that bad. Not, mm. Yeah, not sure really. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, in the words of the butthole surfers, it's, it's, it's better to regret something you have done than something you haven't. So I'd never probably say don't do something. Yes. I, yeah, I mean, there are probably certain doors I could have pushed against, you know, at certain points. And, you know, I think. Uh, you know, in a way, I think because uh, my brother is, like I said, is a successful artist, and that's his job, and he's a very, very fine artist. And um, he he endured the five years of poverty in London, and just kind of went through it or whatever, and just kept faith in, like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna keep going, keep going. And I never quite had the stomach for that. You know, I had after a while in London and being poor and just like you know after a while it's just like oh God, I've just got to I've got to have like the money to buy the odds luxury and comfort and yes and I, and I probably maybe like the whispering whispering voice might have just been like oh I'll just stick at it a bit longer just try a bit harder but I'm not yeah I'm not ambitious I don't have that fortitude and that's the difference between um you know, a sting and a, someone like me, apart from the talent and the good looks, it's the, <laughs> it's, it's, the it's just fortune and luck and kind of, no, not really, but, you know. Um, yeah, but anyway, most people just actually often, yeah, I don't know, most people, I don't know, it's not a great question. <laughs> I can't even say, I can't even say at this point, but is sting happy? 
No, I would imagine though. I do, I do remember. I think it was the guy from Twisted Sister, the sort of guitarist, and he said that you know, if you if you was sort of speaking to a billionaire, he was in their eighties. Would you want to change places uh-huh. with a seventeen-year-old kid with no money living on the streets? They wouldn't even hesitate. They would go, "Yeah, fuck it," and they'd be back there. Uh-huh. To and that's, that's a good one. That is true, isn't it? You know, you you yeah, don't want to be sense. eighty at any age, but even with a million pound, it would be even more irritating because you think. Shit, I don't even, you know, what the fuck, you know, I just would rather be 17 again with, good. you know. Yeah, man, man alive, yeah, to yeah. live in that moment. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm, yeah, a friend of mine um, was over from Tokyo recently, Matt, and uh, he's a Buddhist, and he said, uh, you know, he said to me, would you want to, absolutely, he's always, he's, he's always um, kind of provoking me with, um, kind of teases me about being maudlin about death or anything in the east but he said um would you want to live another hundred years like think about that seriously and you say yeah, no, no way I'm, I'm quite tired after 55. yes i know, you I know. You <laughs> and when you put it like that it's kind of like well, how long do you want man? what is what is this perfect age that you're imagining living to it's like because i remember when i was like you know, you were probably the same. You were 17, you thought like 24 year olds were like absolutely fucking over the hill. Yes. You kind of thought, what was what? Please don't don't let me live that long. But so, yes, yeah. def- definitely 60 seem would be like unbelievable. Yeah. And actually it's interesting now because you get all these tech guys in in California who oh, yeah. when you look, they've all had quite a lot of work and their hair's very yeah. peculiar black. Yeah. And they all look a little bit surprised, and they're and they're obsessed with yes. their diets and their pills, <laughs> and 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 yes. just wanting to live to one hundred and fifty. And you're thinking, but you look a bit bonkers, and you're only sixty something, sixty five, seventy. It's hard to age yeah. you because your face is, it yeah. just looks a bit like you're in permanent surprise mode, and and your teeth are yeah. far too white, and they're kind of you know, and it's and it's kind yeah. of but they're but they're all they're into is you know. They're, they're this diet that you think god i wouldn't want to eat that diet and these pills and these supplements and you know we're going to beat this fucker we're going to beat it and you're thinking it'd be okay if you got to that age and you were still doing you know lots of energy but if if you're just croaking around yeah, you know it's... burn style my my mother's my mother died quite young of lupus she died age 52 and she she never did any of the switch she should have doctors were always recommending you no know, change your diet and do this and blah 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 and she always said when presented with a slice of wholemeal bread or healthier option she always said you know i won't live longer it'll just feel longer this was her uh kind of this is her way to refuse all all health foods and um and you know there is something in that but i guess if those people are i mean there's people like musk or whatever i guess they're just in these completely Hermetically sealed worlds in a way where no one's telling them, yeah, you look like you're made out of plastic and surprised and no, you know, you know, you know cryogenic freezing isn't really a thing. And you know, yes, was telling them that stuff. But, I don't think I don't think you'd tell. But then it's hard to know if you had a life that good or indulged or fantastic. Perhaps you would want to live for another hundred years. Yes, yeah. it wouldn't be good. Though. 
And that, dear listener, isn't just about the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Anthony Dolphin for giving me that time. And uh, that was, as I said, with Santa Spree's and much more. This has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show and um, you'll find me there. Also, all these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.